Good morning. Um, so today we are in John chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 29 through 51. All right, awesome. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, but because he was, but, sorry, surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed in Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize the water, with water told him, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed him. Jesus, turning around, sorry, <laughs> Jesus saw them following and asked, what, did you, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they they went and saw where he was staying, and they sent. They spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was. I'm going to pick this up. Um, sorry, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, "We have found the Messiah." that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which was translated as Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God and are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Praise Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Becky. Let's pray together. Father, it is good to be in your house, gathered together with one voice in worship, and also just to stand in reverence over your word, to hear it read, and to watch this context of how Jesus entered in and began this revolution that we call the church through some very ordinary people. So we pray today, Father, that you, by the Holy Spirit, would teach us your word, that we would not just be simply hearing, but that we would be contextualizing, that we would be internalizing the scriptures and therefore going and living them out in the world. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen. You can have a seat as we continue 
our series through the Gospel of John, the Son of God series. Today we are in chapter 1, verses 29 through 51, as Becky read for us. And I couldn't think of a better introduction to my sermon this morning than to simply show you this. Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? A blessing for the Tsar, of course. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> Encore, more, more. <laughs> That's a, uh, that is a great film. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it was my plug for Fiddler on the Roof. But uh, as we look at this particular piece of Scripture um, in John chapter 1, in order for us to get a full picture of what's happening in this text, um, we do need to sort of put ourselves historically and contextually back a couple of thousand years. And to consider that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi in the first century, who is calling around himself some Jewish followers. And there's a lot in the context that makes this particular passage pop off the pages for us. And Jesus is ministering at this time in the region of Israel called the Galilee. And the Galilee had a reputation of sort of being a backwater place, a place where the people were maybe more just a blue collar, if you would, not as educated, simple folk. Maybe think of Anger or a place like that, you know, just a faraway place. No insult to Anger, just saying Galilee was a little off the radar, uh, if you would. And, uh, but actually, you know, the, the reputation that, they, that was had about the Galilee or the Anger um, was actually misinformed because the Galilee actually had more uh, people in the Galilee that were devout in their following of the Hebrew scriptures than almost any place in the world. They were the most devout in Judaism. And actually more Jewish teachers came from the Galilee region than any other place in the world. And so the reputation wasn't sort of fair. And Jesus goes into the Galilee and begins his movement. So when you think of the Jesus movement, think of what he did in Galilee in the first century. Um, the education system of that day, primarily for a Jew was, uh, the text would be the Torah. And if you're not familiar with Torah language, it, Torah is simply, uh, if you would, we call it also the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bibles, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the education system of the day revolved primarily around the teaching of the Torah, the books of Moses. And that word, Torah, the Torah simply means to teach, to instruct, or also could mean the way. And the teaching of the Torah by the rabbis was so important as part of the culture of the Jewish people in the day in which Jesus was walking the earth. Um, actually, the, the Jews had a term to describe the Torah, which was ma'im ka'im. And so if you ever want to say something's really good, just say ma'im ka'im. You're at someone's house, and you have a good meal, you say, Ma'im Kaim. 
But Mayim Kaim, this phrase for Torah, when they talked about the, the goodness of the Torah, Mayim Kaim means refreshing, life restoring, living waters to Jews, the sweetness of honey and milk, the joy and strength of wine, and the healing power of oil. It is an elixir of life. I love that phrase, the elixir of life, Mayim Kaim, that brings healing to all. Wow. So the Jews had a very high view of the books of Moses, of the Torah, of, of the, these five holy books, and their education and their society was framed around Torah. Actually, it said of rabbinical teachers when they were teaching their, their young students, when kids were first starting their education, the, uh, on the first day of school, like you think, you know, kindergarten or whatever, um, the, the rabbi would plop a, a plop of honey, a dollop of honey on their slates. As they were beginning to learn the Torah, the, the teacher, the rabbi would say, the word of God is sweeter than even honey. And in that day, I mean, there wasn't anything sweeter than honey in existence. And so it was this, the, the, the society in which Jesus is living into has a high reverence for the holy book, for the Torah. And in the Jewish system, there was basically three levels of education. And so if you were a Jew living in the first century, um, the first uh, of the education tiers was what they called Bet Safer. And Bet Safer was equivalent, we would call maybe elementary school. And that would be a mix of boys and girls from ages 5 to 12 would go to Bet Safer. And in that part of your education, the local rabbi from the community would teach you the Torah. You would learn to read and write from the Torah. And it's thought by most that by the time a child graduated from Bet Safer, their elementary school equivalent, they would have memorized the entire Torah. So you imagine just a little 11, 12-year-old boy or girl having the entire book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by heart. These were ballers, right? You get out of elementary school and you're bad. You are ready to talk the holy books. And if you were sort of the cream of the crop amongst Jewish children, you could then graduate to the next level. Most kids, after Bet Sefer and their teaching of the rabbi through Torah, learning to read and write and memorize Torah, they would then go on, the little girls, to learn about domestic life, the farming life, child rearing, things that had to do with raising a family. And most little boys would then go on uh, after their bar mitzvah to sort of step into manhood. They would learn the family trade and go on to marry uh, and, and become a, a participating part of the community. But if you were sort of cream of the crop and bet safer, you would then be invited to come to tier two of the education system there in Israel, which was uh, really the best of the best would go to Beth Midrash. And Beth Midrash was children 13 to 15 years old, sort of we would call that secondary school. And it was there that the local rabbi would, would teach the students, and mostly predominantly all male students in that first century world, would then begin to learn the remainder of the scriptures, the, the poets and the prophets. And so by the time, if, if you were one of the elite and you made it out of Bet Safer, you would go to Bet Midrash and you would learn Genesis to Malachi, all 39 books of the Old Testament, and you would be deeply schooled in that. But there was a third tier. Now, very few, like less than 1% of the populace in Israel would be invited to the next tier. And that next tier, if you were cream of the crop, top of the class was what they called becoming a Talmudim. And the Talmudim 
were basically our equivalent of the word disciple. When you think of the word disciple, think the word Hebrew word Talmudim. And a Talmudim was essentially a young person who was cream of the crop, a male student who had made it through Beth Midrash and Beth Sefer, and then they would be approached by a local rabbi. And they would sort of put their like resume in. They would, they would be trying out to see if they could follow this powerful local rabbi. And so all these young Torah students and, and, and Old Testament prophet students were coming to, to see if they could be the Talmudim of this teacher. And that rabbi would grill them to see if they were intellectually, spiritually fit to follow him and be his Talmudim. And in many cases, if the rabbi interviewing this potential new Talmudim saw that he was unfit, he would be sent back home and likely just take up his father's trade and become a blacksmith or a fisherman or a woodworker or a stonemason. For the very few that got chosen to be the Talmudim, the disciple of a local rabbi, they would then likely leave everything. Family, friends, their local village, their community, their whole life would be devoted to one thing. I will follow and learn the way of my rabbi. And literally in Israel, every rabbi, um, if you read some ancient Jewish literature, you'll find a lot of times they'll say Rabbi Shammai or this Rabbi Ben Joseph. They had these different schools of thought and how to interpret the scriptures. And the school of thought, they called that the yoke of the rabbi. And so Jesus, you know, when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's talking about a body of teachings. And your goal as a young Talmudim, if you were selected and the rabbi said, come follow me and be my Talmudim, be my disciple, then your whole life would be devoted to follow your rabbi. And the, the, the wisdom teachers came up with a saying, sort of a blessing for the young Talmudim. They would say to the young Talmudim, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That is, you would literally follow your rabbi everywhere he went. It wasn't just sitting down and listening to lectures. You ate with him. You, you, you slept in the same room with him. You followed him everywhere. Kind of like, you know, that little scene out of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Just hovering around rabbi, 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 rabbi. I want to get as close as I can to my rabbi. And Jesus sort of takes on that same mantle as an ancient rabbi. As in chapter one, he goes out to pick his disciples, but he does so in an unorthodox, out-of-the-box fashion. Because Jesus does not pull from the elite of society. But he goes to the Galilee. And he chooses his boys but these most likely were men, the 12, who hadn't even made it through Bet's, uh, Bet Midrash. They hadn't even gone to the second tier of Jewish education. They were the not good enough. They had gotten cut from the team. They were out working with their fathers in the trade. Seven of the 12 were fishermen there in the Galilee that Jesus chose. He chose a tax collector, a political radical, seven fishermen, those who society or the local rabbi, they weren't even looking at Peter or Andrew or Philip or Nathaniel. But Jesus comes to them there on the Galilee and says, you, I think you could become like me. I think you could do what I do. Come be my disciple. Radical for a local rabbi, like, like Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth to come and call your name 
And that's really, if you would, what this text is about. It's about Jesus calling ordinary people and saying, I'm gonna put my life in you. So for the next three years, your objective is to be my Talmudim. Hear my teachings, live where I live, experience me, and I'm gonna pour for three years my life into you. And Jesus revolutionized this group of 12, minus one. And they changed the world. Ordinary, average, probably just made it through elementary school, education-wise, got chosen by Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth to be his Talmudim. And he said, I don't need the best. I don't need the highest in society or the most educated or the elite. I will do it with fishermen and backwater Galileans. And you remember in the book of Acts when Peter and John were speaking, in Acts chapter four, it says that the the local religious community observed Peter and John, and it says they saw that they were unlearned and ignorant men. In other words, you didn't go to Bet Midrash. You weren't a Talmudim. Oh, yes, you were. You had been with Jesus. That's what it says. Unlearned and ignorant men, but they had been with Jesus. They spoke how he spoke. They did what he did. Jesus said, I'm going to put my life in you, and you're going to know what I know, and you're going to do what I do. Watch me. Listen to me. Follow me. Get so close to me that my dust covers you, and at the end of these three years, you're going to have enough of the life of God in you that I'm going to leave and turn the whole thing over to you, and you will change the world. Amen? Isn't that good? Isn't that a good story? So you're part of that story. You should be cheering. God loves to take the ordinary and make them uh, world changers. And what's interesting in the narrative is the way that the narrative flows because John the Baptist, who was a radical rabbi of his own sort, he also was unorthodox. John the Baptist had a group of disciples, those who followed him. And at some point, as John the Baptist became aware that Jesus was about to launch his ministry, John started doing something. He started marketing for another rabbi. He started saying, you who are following me, look at that. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in our text, actually John twice points everybody away from himself. He's baptizing down in the Jordan and then Jesus comes and he's like, everybody, stop looking at me. Look at him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later on, John is with just two of his disciples. And he says, it's probably Andrew and Philip. And and as they're hanging out with their rabbi, John, John says, look, there's the lamb, the lamb of God. And it says that, that his two disciples left him and went and followed after Jesus. That's brilliant. And as they go and follow Jesus, this is this great progression they, they had their rabbi, John, say, don't follow me anymore. There's a better rabbi than I. Follow that rabbi, not me. And everybody, you know, later on, they're like, John, are you upset that all your disciples are leaving you and following Jesus? And he's like, that's the reason that I came. My joy is fulfilled when people stop following me and they start following Rabbi Jesus. And as his disciples began to follow, these two disciples began to follow Jesus, physically follow him, he turns around and he asks the question of the ages. He says, In the King James, what do you seek? Or in the NIV, it kind of sounds more confrontational. What do you want? What do you want? What are you following me for? And that's sort of the question that we all must ask as we are attempting to follow Jesus. What are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Who do you think Jesus is? What do you want from Jesus? What's your expectation? And they just said, "Uh, Master, teacher, where do you dwell? 
I love Jesus' answer. He says, come and see. See, Christianity is a come and see religion. I can't, you, can't, you can't understand Christianity through a doctrinal statement. You know, it's funny, I meet people a lot of times that I either tell them I'm a pastor or they've come to Emmaus and they're new. And, and you know, sometimes some people, they'll ask me, well, what's your doctrinal statement? And I'm like, come and see. I mean, yeah, do we have doctrine? Yes, we have orthodoxy. Yes, we believe certain tenets of the faith. But listen, like, you just got to come and see. Come do life with us. Eat at our table. Come to our prayer meeting. Be with us. Be a part of us. Because this thing is more, more caught than taught. Following Jesus is a thing that he says, you just got to live with me. And it's interesting. These two men, they get it. And they spend 24 hours with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm just going to ask you to spend the next 24 hours with me. And then the rest of your life. So these two men, they spend 24 hours with Jesus. It has such an impact on Andrew that the, his reaction to 24 hours with Jesus is he immediately goes and finds his brother, Peter. He's like, Peter, you have got to meet this guy. You know, every time you see Andrew in the Gospel of John, he's always bringing someone to Jesus. You know, we have people in our community like Tom Butalit or Aaron Thomas that every time you see him, they're just bringing someone. They're just bringing people. That was Andrew's role. That was evangelism 101 for Andrew. He's like, I've met Messiah. Peter, you have got to come meet this guy. And Peter just comes along. He's like, all right. May God make more Andrews out of the Emmaus community. People that just know how to say, you know what? Come and see. You just got to come and see this Jesus. And, and, and when you invite people to Jesus, you're inviting them into you, into relationship with you. Come be a friend of mine and I have this friend named Jesus and this other group of people that I'm friends with called Emmaus. Come see. Just come hang out with us. Well, what do you guys believe? What's your doctrinal statement? Just shut up. Just come and see. We believe some stuff. Yes, we do. But we're not, let's not talk about that right now. Y'all just come and see. May God, the spirit of Andrew and Philip, come upon us. The spirit of God to invite people to Jesus. Inviting people to Jesus is inviting them into your life into your community, and then to know this Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth. Philip does the same thing. 24 hours with Jesus, revolutionized their lives. John the Baptist, their rabbi, said, go follow that guy. They said, all right. John the Baptist said it. We're going to follow him. Jesus says, you just come and hang out with me. So the message of Philip and Andrew to all those they're recruiting is just come and see. Because then Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. He's like, Nathaniel, we found the one who Moses wrote about this Messiah who is to come. His Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's sort of like, if you would, he's your skeptic. He's like, what good thing could come from Nazareth? The next world leader coming out of some little, small, podunk community? But, but you have to understand what, what Nathaniel was saying wasn't dissing a small town. But it, it is shocking to think that the, the one who's going to revolutionize the world comes out of Nazareth. But really what Nathaniel was saying is the prophets declared, Micah 5, 2, that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Little did he know that is where this Messiah came from. But he lived in Nazareth, therefore he was Yeshua of Nazareth, this rabbi. And Nathaniel sort of skeptically says, what good thing comes from Nazareth? What prophet spoke of Nazareth being the place where the great Messiah would come? And I love what Philip does. He says, come and see. Not, I'm not going to answer all your questions. 
Well, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus. How can you tell me that he really raised from the dead? How do you know that his writings and uh, what he said was accurate? And how do you know that he's the only way? I just say, come and see. Come, come hang out with the people of God. Come get to know Jesus. Come worship Jesus. And, and, and you'll have a Jesus encounter. Because as you know, Nathaniel becomes a faith-filled follower of Jesus because of this Jesus encounter he's about to have. I pray this for our church, that we would be a place that skeptics are welcome. If you don't believe in Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the risen Lord, you are welcome here. We believe in Jesus, the Christos, the risen Lord, but all we're saying to you is just come and see. Hang out with us. We're good people. We sin, we do some lame stuff, but we're overall pretty good people. Come hang out with us. Come, come be part of our community. And I would say for those of you who know what it is to struggle with skepticism about the way of God, the best way to struggle with your doubt is honestly struggle with it. Face it. Come honestly. See, there's what I call honest doubt and dishonest doubt. People with honest doubt come honestly, humbly, and they seek answers. There are answers. There are people way, way smarter than I who have grappled with the largest, biggest, most controversial questions about science and evolution and, and, and evil and suffering in the world and, and, and the Bible and can we trust it and the manuscripts. There's answers out there. Dishonest skeptics just have decided emotionally they don't want to believe there's a God and then they have come up with an intellectual argument. I dare you to face off with the greatest minds currently living in the world today and in the past and tell me that there isn't a huge tension between these two. We have lots of light on the side of intellectual Christianity. Believe me. And we have equally as intelligent light, or, or not light, but controversy on the other side of the equation. But the great minds have come together. I would encourage you to listen to Justin Brierley's podcast, Unbelievable. He deals with all the subjects with the greatest minds on either side of the fence. We are not afraid of doubts. We're not afraid of skeptics. We're not afraid of skepticism. I'm not afraid of your doubt. God's not afraid of my doubt. You know, God can handle your doubt. The one thing he can handle is pride and arrogance that will not come because you do not want to come. If you have doubt, you are welcome here. I understand it to a degree. And so Nathaniel is just encouraged to come see. And what I love about Nathaniel is that he does it. He comes to Jesus. But I love what happens in this story. It's so great. There's so much nuance and Jewishness to this story. If you miss it, you'll, you'll miss it. You'll read it and you'll be like, there's a point here where you're just going to, what gives? This story's weird. Because as Nathaniel, the skeptic, is like, all right, Philip said, come and see. I'm just going to come and see. And as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus gives him a shout out. He goes, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel's response is, how do you know me? I've never met you. Hi, my name is Nathaniel. And Jesus is like, I already know you. We skipped the introductions. Behold, an Israelite in him whom there is no deceit. But if you were to read this in the ancient language, if you were to take this and translate it to Hebrew, it might read something like this. Behold an Israelite in whom is no Yaakov, in whom is no Guile, in whom is no Jacob. He's like, what? 
Why are you saying that to me? Well, there's more to this story you're going to see. So Jesus, he sees Nathanael. He's like, hey, Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Nathanael's like, how do you know me? And he's like, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Now look at this. Verse 48, Nathanael's like, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you where you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. So this is really strange. Nathanael is a really deep skeptic of Jesus. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. Philip says, just come and see this man. He gets a shout out from Jesus. Behold, Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. Then Jesus then tells him, I knew you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And then notice the switch in Nathanael. Then Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What? Wait, what just happened in this interchange? Where he's like, I don't even believe that this guy's, he couldn't be the Messiah. And then in just a few sentences, Jesus has knocked down all his objections. And he's like, you are the Messiah, the son of God. Like something that Jesus said worked. I, I don't know if it was the sight of Jesus. I don't know. Well, I, I have a suspicion. I think I know what happened. But it's in the Jewishness of the text. Jewish rabbi, Jewish student. He says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, there is no deceit, there is no Jacob. And Nathaniel's intrigued. He's like, how do you know me? He goes, well, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, a fig tree was the place where Jewish students would study Torah. Most scholars think, based on verse 51, that it was there as Nathaniel sat under the fig tree that he was meditating on Genesis 28. The story of Jacob's vision of that ladder that went from heaven to earth and the angels ascend and descend upon it. It's thought that it's very likely that Nathaniel was studying that piece of scripture and Jesus is saying, hey, Israelite in whom there's no Jacob, how do you know what I was reading for devotions this morning? This is weird. How do you know me? He's like, I saw where you were doing your devotions, reading your Bible, meditating on the Old Testament Torah, Genesis 28, huh? Right? Under the fig tree, studying. And he's like, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And he's like, if, if that's a big deal to you, I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet, kid. You are going to see upon the son of God, angels ascending and descending upon me. Sounds like Jacob's ladder to me, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus had a knowledge of Nathaniel at a very deep level. And it was that knowing of Nathaniel that knocked down all these objections. And Nathaniel becomes one of the first followers. There's something powerful about a skeptic's conversion. Because if someone's hard to get into the faith, hard to persuade, once they have been convicted, they don't leave easy. Hard to get in, hard to get out. Easy in, easy out. Modern Christianity is easy in sometimes. You don't have to do much, don't have to believe much, don't have to know much, don't have to think much. Just come in. We just, we're all about critical mass. Jesus is saying one at a time, we will call you and skeptics like Nathaniel come in and become loyal followers. A guy by the name of David Downing wrote uh, the story of C.S. Lewis and his journey of faith. 
And he, he called this book the most reluctant convert. And if you, like me, have some, some kind of like um, crush on C.S. Lewis, uh, <laughs> I just have, have just so been so blessed, deeply blessed. My family's been so deeply blessed by C.S. Lewis. But his story is one of, of early skepticism. If you know anything about it, um, Lewis, when he was just a young child, was raised in the church, uh, Church of England. His mother was devout, um, but she died when he was nine years old. And after she died, um, Lewis's life went into despair. He, he talks about um, it being like Atlantis, like there were islands, but they were all buried under the sea. Like all the good had gone with mom. Mom is gone. And, and his father couldn't cope with his mother's death. And so he sent the boys off to a boarding school. And he had a terrible uh, master at the boarding school. And so Lewis, during that time of despair, um, began to, you know, foster the life of his mind and was turned on to the skeptics and the atheists. And so Lewis became a hopeless atheist, a very hardened, skeptical atheist. And, and during that, that time of his journey, he began to read the likes of G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald. And he just happened to be friends with the great J.R.R. Tolkien, the providence of God. And as, as these writings, George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton, and then the friendship he had with J.R.R. Tolkien and others began to erode away some of the dark despair and doubt that atheism had, had brought into Lewis's heart. And he tells the story about his conversion, and it's such an uneventful conversion, it's sort of awesome, uh, because this is the way skeptics come in. So he's riding a bus in Oxford, 1929, and while on the bus, he just says, he has this sense that, the, as, as he says it in his words, let me find the quote here, um, he says that... Uh, he had the sense that he was holding something at bay or shutting something out. He, so he just decides, I guess I'd better be open to God because God is knocking. So he submits himself to God and calls himself in that moment or about that moment later in reflection, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So it's just kind of like he's sitting on the bus and he's thinking about all the conversations he's had and the doubts he's had and the truth and light that have come in. He's like, I guess God wants me to come in. I guess I better do it. All right. <laughs> That's it. And, and yet, obviously, Lewis had a, a tremendous overhaul as he became a Talmudim, a follower of Jesus, and has written and spoke and thought in ways that have revolutionized Christendom since then. Thank God for C.S. Lewis. Thank God that God isn't afraid of skeptics and atheists. Thank God that he has men like J.R.R. Tolkien or, or men of the mind like G.K. Chesterton or men of the mind like George MacDonald that can poetically through story and brilliance and mind say everything that is darkened in your heart about God can be taken on if you're humble enough to listen. And like Nathaniel, Lewis comes into faith and changes the shape of Christianity. But the question for the morning for each of us is just simply this. Would you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Would you consider yourself a disciple, one of Jesus' apprentices, his Talmudim? And if you say yes, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of us would say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, not so fast. Because what things would mark you as a disciple of Jesus? You can't just say you're a disciple of Jesus if you're not covered in the dust of your rabbi. If you're not really following the rabbi. The Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes, and it's used 262 times in the New Testament. 
The lexicon defines disciple or mathetes, the Greek, this way. One who shares a close and intimate relationship with a person. One of the greatest misunderstandings in the church today is that there, are, there is a two-tier approach to Christianity, that there are two levels. That there's believers and then there's disciples. There's just everybody, the general populace of those who call themselves Christian or follower of Jesus. And then there are the ninjas. There are the black belts. There are the disciples. Those are the super spiritual ones. But the Bible has one category. Jesus has one calling. The calling is follow me. Everybody. You come in one way. You're a disciple or not. There's not believer, disciple. There is disciple. There is come follow me. The hard way of Jesus. Going the whole way with Jesus. Giving up everything for Jesus. There's that way or no way. Lord of all, not Lord at all. Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's this, there's one way. It's come follow Jesus. There's not a two-tiered approach. And so every single one of us that would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, I would say, are you a disciple? Because belief and behavior have got to ally themselves. And if your belief and your behavior don't ally, them, ally themselves, then you are someone who believes with your mind. But James says the demons believe Orthodox Christianity and they're the demons of hell. Don't mean nothing. What means something is when you say, I will be your Talmudim. I don't, I mean, look at, look at Philip and Andrew and Nathaniel and, and Peter, the first to follow. They knew very little. All they knew was that, that the other rabbi, John, said, that's the Lamb of God, the one we've been waiting for. We will go follow him and we will learn as we go as he pours his life into us. Christianity is not a theological test, brothers and sisters. It is a hard decision to follow the hard way of Jesus. And the hard way of Jesus is not an easy way, but it's a way of life. It's the way to find your hope and your joy. It's all wrapped up in a person, in the person of Jesus. And to become his Talmudim, there is that way and that way alone. So how would I consider whether or not I am the disciple? Well, there are three primary ways I would just mention to you as it concerns being a Talmudim, an apprentice, a follower of Jesus. Um, one part of being a disciple is knowing. That's just learning the way of Jesus. That's the Bible, the Scriptures, truth, teaching, study. Know the truth. Know God's truth. Know, know the way of Jesus. You've got to know some stuff. That's why we teach the Bible here. Because we realize like, we need to be acquainted with this book. We need to be acquainted with the teachings of Jesus and the Scriptures. The second is doing. Practicing the way of Jesus. Doing what Jesus did. What He taught. Living it out. I mean, Jesus had a story to tell about architecture. He said there's two kinds of houses. One house is the house built on sand. One is the house built on rock. Storms hit both houses. One stands, one falls, based on foundations. Foundation is this. Hear these sayings of mine and do them. The teaching means a lot, but if you don't do anything with it, it's not called Talmudim living. Covering yourself in the dust of your rabbi saying, Rabbi, teach me what you know. Teach me your way. Teach me your way. I want to know your way. And then I want to live your life. I want to live like you lived. I want to do what you did. I want to practice the way of Jesus. And it is a practice. We're overcoming our old nature. So the doing of Jesus' way doesn't mean you do it perfectly. It means that you are trying. It means that you are try and fail and try again to live the life that Jesus is teaching you to live. To take his teaching seriously into your heart and live them out in your hands and feet and your mouth and your life. 
Knowing, doing, and then finally being. And this may be the one that sort of umbrellas over all the being, and that is serving God from the heart. That is consistently connecting with Jesus by prayer, worship, and Scripture. That's where we start talking about some of the ancient spiritual practices of Lectio Divina and examine, the nightly examine, and and morning readings and learning to sit in silence and solitude and meditate on God and on his truth and to allow yourself to be just empty, to, to just sit in the silence and enjoy God. Because the path to discipleship is enjoyment of God. Don't forget to enjoy God. He's to be enjoyed. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Come, eat and drink of the bounty that God has for you. Delight in the delights of God. Glut yourself in the Lord. And in doing that in the quiet morning hours, for me it's uh, setting the alarm clock just early enough where I know no kids are going to bother me. I get bothered by this giant horse every morning. Name Astro. He's our great name. But other than that, no one bothers me for the first hour of my day, right? And so after I let Astro out to go to the bathroom, I make my cup of coffee because that matters. Um, and I, I have this, this chair with this ottoman that my wife recovered. It's this really bright green. And I put my feet on there, get the blankie, have my Bible, my journal, my cup of coffee, which is important. And for those of you who like hot drinks and coffee especially, there's something about that first cup. You know, on the steam. Sometimes I'll just hold the cup and for 10 minutes just let, you know, the fragrance and the steam. But, but, but it does, it, I just, basically my first 10 minutes is just being like, I just need to shut up. I need to wake up. I need to center. I need to breathe. And, and at some point, maybe five, maybe 10 minutes of just being quiet, I get the sense that I'm okay now to read my Bible. I don't, I don't start right away in the Bible. I'm in Isaiah right now. That's been really tough and awesome, um, but tough and awesome. Um, so, you know, at 5 a.m., you know, I'm not ready for Isaiah. Give me 10 minutes and a couple sips of this coffee and just, oh. and I, I don't even worry about that time. I just like, my main objective for the first few moments is just emptying my soul, just quiet myself and let God speak and let my heart be still and try to delight in the quietness of the morning and hear the sounds of the nothingness and feel the steam and enjoy. And then it's, it's my Lectio Divina time. It's just the, the, the really very simple, slow reading of the scriptures. Taking my time, meandering, no agenda. I'm not trying to race anybody to finish the Bible in any certain amount of time. I'm just delighting, not understanding most of it, circling things, thinking about things. And I might read the same chapter a few times, might hover over a sentence and just, I got this little pencil and I just circle some stuff and then I got my journal and I'll write some stuff and I'll, I'll just sit there and kind of weird out with the Lord and I might turn on a worship song and start crying. I do this. Uh, no one's up. It's fine. You know, the dog won't care. He don't know. <laughs> he don't have a soul. He's just in the room getting hair over everything. Um, I just sit there and, and I just delight in the Lord. You know, it makes, it makes, it makes my life better. Life is going to be what it is every day. But I, I need the place where God restores my soul. As the deer pants for the water brook, oh God, my soul longs for you. There's this one scene in the Gospels in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus has called his 12 around them in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And, and he's talking to the 12 and he says this to them. He, appoint, he says this, he appointed 12 that they might be with him that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. I love this. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. 
Basically, the life of a disciple is a life with Jesus. That's first and foremost. And then he says, as you're with me, my life will go into you. And then I'm going to send you out to do what I do. Go preach. Cast out demons. Don't let those devils have their way. You cast out the devils. But, but first, I call you that you might be with me, that I'm going to put my life in you, and then send you out to do what I do. That's the life of a Talmudim. That's the life of a disciple. That is the life of every true Christian that we would know and do and be in the way of Jesus. Here's a, the, the, one of the final things I, I do want to say, and that is just simply this. Um, you're not going to accomplish this by yourself. When Jesus started his revolution, he started a community. He didn't just call one disciple and said, just you and me. You need time alone with Jesus, but you need time with people. You need mentors, you need friends, and you need people you're inviting to follow the way of Jesus as well. And I would just ask us this, these simple two questions to leave off this morning. Are you actively following Jesus? Knowing, learning, are you learning? Are you still learning? You have not learned all there is to learn. You don't know all there is to know. Do you know that? If you're not humble, you'll say no, but if you're humble, you'll say amen. I know I don't know it all. I got more to learn. There's, there's many more miles to go down this road. Are you knowing and doing, practicing? If you learn something in your morning devotions and go, you know, there, that's one thing I just need to do. I need to stop talking so negative. I need to be nicer. I need to stop complaining. I need to be su- not be such a narcissist. I, I need to turn away from these things. I, I, actually, I need to go and give. I need to be more generous. It's just doing the way of Jesus is finding that one thing that God is saying for the day. It's like, God, help me to practice this today. And then just being with Jesus. That's what a Talmudim does. Are you actively following Jesus, knowing, doing, and being with him? And can you identify the community that you're following him with? And if I could have a one-on-one with you, and we were talking about discipleship, I, I would just simply point blank ask you, who is the community that you're following Jesus with? Why well, go to Emmaus? Don't care. Who is the community that you're following Jesus with? Who's your mentors? What are their names? First and last name. I want to make sure they're a real person. When was the last time you talked to your mentor? What did they say? Why don't you have any mentors? You think you know it all? Think you're the smartest? I don't know how to get a mentor. Let's, let's pray for you that you find a, an older man or woman that you see has followed the way of Jesus that you can, you can learn from, that you can be humble enough to ask questions of. Don't be young and dumb. Don't be, don't be young and arrogant. Don't be old and arrogant. Find people that, that you can do life with that can teach you things. Who's your mentor? Some of us might have mentors that are in books. It's good to have book mentors. It's also good to have living mentors. Who are your friends? Well, no one's very friendly to me. You're probably not very friendly then. (laughs) You want to have friends? Show yourself friendly. That's the Bible. That's not me. People that say they have no friends, I get there's all kinds of social things going on, but I would say to have friends, you have to show yourself friendly. Put yourself out there. Try to invite people into your life. Who are your friends? Name them. Who are they? I mean, you probably only, when I say friends, I just don't mean people you know. I'm talking friends. People that when the phone rings at 2 a.m. are like, okay, it's him. I'm, I'm answering this. It's her. I'm going to, I'll be there. You can't have that many. 
those kinds of disciple friends, your posse, your, your homies, the people that are in your crew, like your two or one or three, that you're like, it's those three. If, I, if I'm going down, they're going down with me, or I'm going to reach out for them as I go down. <laughs> those are those people. They're close enough, I can grab their shirts as I'm getting pushed in the lake. Those are, those are my friends. Who are yours? How many do you have? Not Facebook friends, they don't count. I know Facebook's the old guy thing, but... And who are you bringing along? Who are, the, who are the people by name that you say, you know, God's put this person in my life. And you can probably only handle one or two at a time. But just someone you're aware that you're like, I, I'm teaching this person. They're either younger chronologically or younger in the faith, and God just called me to, to sort of bring them along, to, to share with them what I'm learning, how I'm growing, to invite them like Nathaniel. Hey, just come and see like Philip did to Nathaniel. Come and see like Andrew did to Peter. Those are my two challenges for, this, for us this morning, and that is simply this. Are you actively following the way of Jesus, and are you doing it with people? And I would say this. Don't feel bad if you don't have those people. We don't all have those people in place right now. Some of us may be heavy on the people we're bringing along, but we don't have many mentors. There aren't many people that are willing to be mentors, but if you find one, they are like gold. And if you're someone who's at a place in your life where you feel like you could take on some mentors or some mentees, then I would say, like, let us know. Send me an email and say, if you have people who need an older person in their life, I would be willing to start building that relationship. Please send me an email, and I would love to start connecting people. But I would say, let's have conversations, honest conversations. I don't have any friends. That's not good. Don't do life alone. Loneliness is a killer. Don't be alone. Bring people along. Don't just be self-centered. And it's in those ways, as we actively follow Jesus, we need the people of God in our lives and to be able to name who they are. Because the way of Jesus is only one, and that is we become disciples, followers, Talmudim. Amen? Let's stand together.